Let's pray as we come to look at God's word together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your Holy, Holy Spirit inspired those people to write it all those years ago. And we pray now, Lord, that uh, you would take these words of mine and that they would speak to our hearts this morning. Amen. Well, of course, uh, waiting isn't easy, is it? Some of you uh, will remember about six weeks ago now, I suppose it was, there were an awful lot of people who were waiting, particularly if they were sort of somewhere down there. You know, they were waiting for all those lovely shiny parcels that were sitting under the tree. Waiting's not easy. Expectation arises. And of course, for us here at Trinity, it's been exactly the same. 2016 was the year when our rector moved on to his new ministry in Amsterdam. And we started the long, long process of trying to uh, look for an appointment. And the uh, PCC has been very active in, in that process. And as you've already heard, February, I think it's the 17th, the advert goes out. Waiting is not easy. Expectation arises. And in some extent, I think the uh, situation of the people of the Old Testament, the children of Israel, was the same. They were waiting for their Messiah. They were waiting for the promises of God to be fulfilled. And uh, in fact, the, the whole of the Old Testament is a record of this journey of waiting. And in our passage this morning, which you might like to turn to, I'm sorry, I've forgotten the page number, but it's Luke 4, verses 14 to 30. Jesus declares in this passage that the time has come. Jesus declares the promises of Isaiah. And we read also, if you look at that chapter, not just those verses, but if you look at the preceding verses as well, you will see that Jesus is filled with God's Holy Spirit. And he's well thought of. So if I could have the first uh, slide, please. Jesus speaks of his work and his ministry. The day has come, Jesus says, for, for God's fulfillment of his promise. God has promised a decisive action. After almost 2,000 years of promise stretching ahead, Jesus stands up in the temple and declares that this day has come. Now, to understand this, we need to understand a little bit about what happened in the Jewish temples. Their service wasn't too dissimilar to ours in that they had readings. They would start with a reading from Deuteronomy, then they'd go to the Torah, which was the passages from Genesis through to Deuteronomy. Then they would have some prayers, and then they would have a reading from the prophets, and it was quite often that a visiting man would be invited then to speak from the passage. And this, of course, 
is what Jesus was doing in this passage. Jesus was reading from Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 to 2, and he then sat down to declare the promises of God. But unlike most talks or most sermons, Jesus was very brief. Look what he says. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And as I was reading this, I thought, well, there are two questions that come to mind for me from this passage. Two questions. What is Jesus' ministry in this passage? As shown us in this passage, what is Jesus' ministry going to be about? Well, you will see it here. It's in verse... uh, lost the verse, sorry, verse 18, okay, it's up there on the screen, to preach the good news to the poor, to proclaim the freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's presence. And that, in a nutshell, was what Jesus' ministry was going to be about. Now, theologians have looked at this in some quite detail and pulled it all apart, and they have debated the significance of what Jesus actually said. Was he actually physically talking about the poor, the oppressed of the world? Some people say, yes, he was. And this led, if you remember back in time, to the Jesus movement, where it was a political action. Others say, no, 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 it's not what he was talking about at all. But if we actually go back into Luke's Gospel, and we look in chapter 1, for instance, we see that the poor are mentioned specifically. And it does refer to class, and it does refer to uh, poor physically, but it also refers to poor spiritually the spiritual poor who respond to God's message and embrace it with humility. Now, this is not a one-off, for instance. If you go into the Apostle James's book, and you look in James 2, verse 5, James writes this, Listen, my brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith? and inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him. And so as I was thinking and praying about this, I wondered, well, do we in our generation, do we reflect this as part of Jesus' ministry? Is this the goal of our private lives and our church lives? To think about the poor and to bring them release. Well, I think there are three challenges that come from this passage to us this morning. If you look at verse 14, for instance, verse 14, you will read that it says that Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit. Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit. We remember, don't we, uh, just a few verses back that Jesus had been baptised by John and the Holy Spirit had descended upon them. And I wondered, are we filled with the Holy Spirit? And not only are we filled with him, are we submissive 
to the Holy Spirit, to allow all of his gifts to be used within the church for the expansion of his kingdom. Now, I haven't got time and place, of course, to go through all the spiritual gifts, but, you know, look at 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Corinthians 13 and 14. Or are we relying on our own strengths to bring God's kingdom in? Well, we read here that Jesus, at the beginning of his ministry, was filled with the Holy Spirit. So that was the first challenge for us this morning. Are we filled and submissive to the Holy Spirit as a church, as individuals? Secondly, is the priority of our church to bring good news to the poor? Now, of course, there are lots of ways to bring good news to the poor. Yes, through preaching, obviously through the spoken word, but also through practical actions. And as I was thinking about this, I thought, yep, we do. We've got some really good examples of this within our church. We support, for instance, Norwich Food Bank, where we give food to those people that have less than us. We provide community lunches once a month, and there's a notice about that on the notice sheet this morning. But I'm told the community lunch people need more volunteers. We support New Beginnings on Sunday afternoons, which seeks to reach out to those in our parish who actually, if you look at it, are often poorer than the rest of us. We support English Plus, which meets here on a Thursday morning. English Plus is a group which meets for the helping of asylum seekers and non-English speakers, and we support that. We hold a holiday club for children of the parish, which is a wonderful event, and it brings joy to the children of our parish, and it gives them the opportunity to hear the good news of Jesus. And all of these events, and there's art groups, and there's other events as well, I'm sure, all of these things are good, and they benefit uh, the community. But I would like to encourage us that they will benefit more from more prayer support, more financial support, and of course, more volunteers. We want to be, not to be sitting on our laurels, we want to be moving forward, because Jesus wanted to seek the poor and bring them release. But thirdly, the third challenge I thought came from this passage this morning is the challenge of healing and deliverance from captivity. Captivity to uh, dare I say it, demonic activity, bringing freedom. God sent Jesus to proclaim freedom for, to all the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed. Is that something that we actually consider? Is this part of our action as a church? Well, verse 31 through to verse 44 makes it clear that oppression in view here is mainly spiritual. Spiritually, that pulls us down, that brings sin, pain, and pressure, being under demonic oppression. It's like being trapped, isn't it, in a prison of pain, despair, and fear. And if you're thinking, well, this doesn't apply to us, just remember what those, that survey that we were a part of carried out in our area uh, a few months ago. 
survey came back. What were people concerned about? Well, there was quite a lot of fear in those results. And we read in the New Testament, of course, and we read in the Gospels, that Jesus performs miracles which shows his power of release. The miracles show us his power to perform physical healing, but also spiritual healing. In fact, the miracles work at two, two levels. Healing, we read in chapter 18, for instance, healing of the blind man physically, and the pictures that Jesus also gives to Zacchaeus in chapter 19. Jesus is the physical healer, but he's also the spiritual healer. He brings physical healing to those oppressed, but he brings spiritual deliverance as well. Spiritual deliverance that brings forgiveness and a relationship with God. So our challenge then is, not only in belief concerning what God did, our challenge is not just to bring the good news of who Jesus was, but that he expects us as his followers to do likewise. Think about what John's Gospel says. John chapter 14, verse 12 says this, and it's Jesus speaking. I tell you the truth, anyone who has faith in me will do what I've been doing. He will even do greater works than these because I'm going to the Father. What a claim. What a statement. And how is this actually possible? Well, it's possible, Jesus says, through the power of the Holy Spirit. Again, we read of that in John 14 and Acts 2. We read in Acts 2, don't we, how the Holy Spirit came down in power on those people meeting in that room. We saw how the apostles laid hands on people so they received the gift of the Holy Spirit. We see how the apostles taught the gospel and acted the gospel in bringing healing too. And so we see here that Jesus is calling his disciples to bring healing and restoration to people in need through the power of the Holy Spirit and not by their own efforts or strengths because this is a spiritual battle. So therefore, this morning, my first question was, what is Jesus' message? Well, Jesus' message is to preach the good news to the poor, to proclaim freedom for prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord. The year of the Lord, of course, refers to the year of when they gave things back Debt was released. Slaves were made free. So that's what that comment actually means. But my second question is this. How did people respond, and how do we respond to Jesus to go and do likewise? How did they respond? How did people respond? How did the crowd respond to this statement? Because I'd like to suggest that Jesus' statement offers no possibility of fence-sitting. Jesus' claim that today this scripture from Isaiah is fulfilled in your presence required a decision by the crowd who was listening. 
And I think we need to expect this, don't we, when we come to witness to our friends and family and colleagues and the community around us. There requires a decision. People cannot stand on the fence. But how does the crowd actually respond? Well, I think the crowd responds in three ways, doesn't it? Let's have a look at the three ways. They were firstly amazed. Look at verse 14. Now, we need to understand, uh, at, by this time, Jesus had been walking around Galilee, he had been preaching, and he had been uh, carrying out miracles. And the people praised him. They thought well of him. They were amazed at his gracious teaching. In other words, there was a very positive response to Jesus at this time. But secondly, they weren't only amazed, they were somewhat perplexed. Look at verse 22. They were perplexed at this man Jesus. And they were perplexed because they knew quite a lot about him. They may well have been at school with him. They may well have seen him working in the carpenter's shop. They may even have bought things that he or his father had made. They knew his background. So how could God's promised Messiah be this man that he was claiming to be? How could it be him? It's a pretty, good, pretty um, honest response, isn't it? They were perplexed. They didn't know quite how to respond to this man, Jesus. Well, Jesus responds to them in three ways. He cites a proverb that indicates they want him to prove his claims. Show me is their basic response. If you're the Messiah, you show us. But even after the evidence is produced through the ways of miracles, they won't necessarily believe. And we see that throughout the Gospel, because doubts will remain. Miracles are fine, they're powerful testimony, but they will never convince anyone who doesn't want to come to God. We see that in Luke 16, he writes that. But secondly, Jesus quotes a proverb that a prophet is not honoured in his home. He quotes the Old Testament history and predicts that for many in Israel, this is what will happen with his ministry. He won't be recognised. He won't be honoured. But thirdly, Jesus uh, recalls the work of Elijah and Elisha in the history of his people. And there's a warning here, isn't there? Because what happened in Elisha and Elijah's day was that the people of Israel turned away from the worship of the living God. They became idolatrous, they became unfaithful, and they rejected God's message. And so what he's saying here is that it, there is a danger, there's a warning here that God's mercy will depart from them. God's mercy went from the people of Israel and went to another place outside his people, the Gentiles. And so he quotes the two examples of uh, the uh, widow and Naomi, the uh, Syrian man, who were outside of the Gentiles. And as I was thinking about this, I wondered, is this what's happening in our country today? A rejection 
of God's standards, rejection of the worship of the one true God. And so, the people were amazed, they were perplexed, but thirdly, they were angry, they were fuming, it says. They were fuming. They were angry at the suggestion that God is rejecting them, the called people of God, and that God is blessing the Gentiles instead, and that he, Jesus, is the Messiah. And we read here the first attempt of the crowd of the people to try and kill Jesus. But we also see a miracle here. It's not written as a miracle, but the miracle happened because Jesus just walked straight through the crowd because God's time wasn't here then. It wasn't in God's timing that Jesus should die at that point. They tried to kill him. And so the response of the people to being healed and being released is that uh, they rejected his message. But we know that this wasn't the full account because we know that in other parts of the Gospels there is a response, a positive response to Jesus. There is a response. People are healed. People are released from enslavement. The demonic man is uh, freed from his chains. And we know today, don't we, that the response to people being healed and being released from enslavement to sin is that people are attracted into the community of Jesus' followers and God's kingdom is extended. The the ear of the Lord's favour extends. And so I wondered, as I thought about this passage, I wondered, what is our response to Jesus and his mission? Well, surely we can be encouraged, can't we, this morning, that God has promised and provided the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who has the power and ability to enable us to be a part of Jesus' mandate, to preach the good news to the poor, to bring liberation to those in bondage. So let's be challenged this morning. But let's also be responsive to Jesus and his calling upon us as individuals and us as a church. Let's move forward and extend the work that we are doing to bring release to those in bondage. Amen.